Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Last September, we devoted an episode of The Commentary to a 30,000-foot view of Matthew's Gospel as I began preaching through that book at Grace. Now it's May, and we've just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through and next Sunday we'll begin a new series on chapters 8 and 9. In this episode, Cameron and I are going to do two things. First, we'll wrap up the Sermon on the Mount by digging deeper into what it means not just to hear, but to do Christ's words. Then we'll shift gears and talk about the new series and the way that the theme of Christ's royal authority runs through the events of chapters 8 and 9. Well, at Grace, Pastor Mark, we finally made it through our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been a wonderful journey. How many weeks do you think it's been? There have been 20 sermons in this series. Okay. So 20 weeks of Jesus' teaching. I've certainly learned a lot, and I wanted to spend some time in this episode slowing down and looking back before we move on to the next chapters. I'm curious if there are any big takeaways or maybe new revelations that you're thinking about <laughs> as, as you're leaving behind the Sermon on the Mount and, and moving forward. Well, I think one of the things I was really at pains to do from the beginning was to take a very familiar sermon of Jesus's mm-hmm. and not, not make it you know, fresh and new, because obviously the, the reason it's familiar is because this stuff has been interpreted and reinterpreted and preached and preached, and it is rightly well known in the yeah. church. But my hope was that in going through it the way that we have, we would come to appreciate it differently and, and also to see uh, the interconnectedness, because as we mentioned at the beginning of this uh Matthew has compiled the teachings of Jesus, and in Matthew's gospel, they come in these discrete discourse sections. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is chapters 5, 6, and 7, and that's the longest one. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, it's possible to read that sermon and read it kind of like you would read the book of Proverbs Mm -hmm. and just have these discrete teachings, you know, just kind of go one to the other. What was fascinating to me, though, is to begin to see an interconnectedness, like how there's a a deeper emphasis on the life of the kingdom community, the way that everything that we're told in the Sermon on the Mount takes place in the context of the call to love, uh, not just our neighbors, but our enemies. And in a way, Every aspect of the sermon is is telling us something about that. And so for me, that's been really helpful to 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 see all of it together as a sermon on on how to live in the kingdom of God in a way that is loving and puts others first, even though we still live in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you say, these passages have been nuanced so many times over the generations that I even find myself hearing the passage, whatever it is, you know, at several points, 
and thinking, okay, that's what Jesus says, but this is what he means. You know, I, right. I, I think I get what, you know, we know now that he doesn't literally mean, uh, you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or, right. or something or, like or that. You can't ever judge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there were lots of those points where I, I appreciated where you paused and sort of like barred those, you know, set aside those yeah, buts for a second and then just really let the teaching hit us kind of directly. And, and there was something about that that was fresh and it just, for me anyway, it was like, okay, I'm not just getting this like kind of same old interpretation. Like here's the, here's the text and here's what we know it means. And, you know, yeah. go on with your life. Well, it's hard to imagine that people were gathered around hearing Jesus preach and you know, there was this murmur in the audience with everything he said where someone would, would lean over and say, well, he doesn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. Or no, 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 not literally. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that we now having experienced it for ourselves, can see what it was they found so astonishing that it wasn't, you know, familiar stuff to them. Like this was new and challenging. And, and I hope that we can feel some of the challenge of it. Yeah. It seems to me that if we don't feel that challenge, then we're, we're missing something, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about I noticed over the course of the series that the titles of the sermons were very direct. Um, Start doing this. Stop doing this. Stop judging. And this last one, was it prepare for the storm or or something like that? Build for the storm. Yeah. Um, Very direct commands. Can you say more about that? Why? Why did you take that? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the common ways of seeing the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving a sort of um, you might call it like the law of the kingdom or the law of grace or something like that, where he's he's recontextualizing the law. Mm-hmm. And so it's coming in a series of commandments, so to speak, or imperatives. And I think there is something to that. And as we've gone through, especially in the last half of this series, we've seen a lot of those imperatives. There's been a lot of, you know, start praying like this. Mm-hmm stop judging, you know, stop doing this, start doing that, you know, and, and, and essentially teaching that is meant to orient us towards a life of action and actually practicing our faith, not just seeing our faith as a belief system or philosophy, but it's actually something you're meant to live. Yeah. Okay. Well, that gets us nicely to Sunday's sermon, which was the you know the close of the sermon on the mount the passage about building your house on the sand or on the rock jesus of course says that the people who obey his commands who live this out like you're saying are the people who build their their lives their households that word that you used on the rock and i wanted to talk a little bit more about that too because again i liked how you kind of let that that very almost you know, somber message land on us. Like Jesus just kind of flat out says like, you got to do what I say. (laughs) Right. And, and there's obvious truth to that. And that's not the whole story, you know, but, um, I wanted to ask what's, you know, I guess I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what's next. What is, what does obedience look like in the Christian life? So we know that obedience isn't an option, 
that Jesus says, you have to do these things. You, this is what the kingdom looks like. So you got to start doing these things. Can we talk about how that happens? And here's maybe a, a particular angle. You mentioned that word household. So Jesus is talking about not just individuals necessarily, but communities of people. And I'm just wondering what, okay, as a, as a community, Grace or any community, how can we start to maybe develop habits or disciplines that help us do these things rather than thinking individualistically? Sure. Yeah. So it starts with that distinction uh, between treating Christianity as a philosophy versus a faith that you practice. Yeah. So if we're going to practice the faith, that means we're going to be actually doing the things that Jesus tells us to do, not just giving mental assent to them or thinking they're good ideas or whatever. That's obedience, but oftentimes when we talk about obedience, we make it sound like it's it's this heavy burden. But in in fact, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's just Jesus says, you know, live this way, live the way that I call you to live. And if you hear that and you're astonished by it and you want to follow him, then it just naturally proceeds from that, that mm-hmm. you would do the kind of things that he calls you to do. So practicing the faith is the idea to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And that means listening to the things he's instructed us to do more as like a plan of action than as a you know set of principles, if that makes sense. So there were a lot of really practical things that we're called to do. So Christ calls us into community. So we are meant to be bonded together as a household of faith. And that means being part of a church, right? That means being part of a, a community where a lot of different people have been brought together by God's grace and, and placed into this context where they have to live together and worship together. So the principal activity of the practice of the Christian faith is worship. And we are always quick to say something like, uh, all of life is worship. Great, but let's just start with really basic things you know, we're actually called to gather together on the Lord's day and worship him as his people. And that's a baseline communal experience, a practice that we're called to. Everything that we do in worship is also a practice that we're called to in our day-to-day lives. So, Prayer is one of the things that we do in a worship service, but prayer is also a daily thing that we're called to do as Christians. One of the ways we practice our faith is through prayer. Immersing ourselves in Scripture is another example of something we are called to do Uh, regularly. We do it in worship as a kind of model for the sort of life that we're called to live constantly. That's a way of practicing our faith. But it's also true that, that other things, for example, uh, serving one another, uh, serving the community that we find ourselves in, working together to help other people, all of those are also ways of practicing our faith. So the act of worship, which bonds us as a church, is also like the baseline out of which we start doing other things communally as well. And we develop 
friendships, relationships that encourage us in our discipleship, but we also act together mm. in the larger community. And, and that's another way of practicing our faith. Mm. So you're saying that worship on a Sunday morning is sort of a, a picture of the Christian life. It's a, it's a microcosm, or maybe it's the macrocosm and our lives are micro microcosms of that act of worship on a, a communal level. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, just practically speaking, if you think of the liturgy as the outline for living, you know, that, that we're being formed in worship week by week, but we're being given like the things we want to practice in our life together. So we want to practice generosity. We do it in church, but we want to do it in our lives together as well. Uh, every discipline really that that we see modeled for us in worship is something that has a lot of echoes or or, or outworkings in our lives together mm-hmm. so i think to me that's the helpful way to think about practicing the faith it just means we're committed to one another committed to one another in christ committed to living our faith out together publicly for the life of the world. And that just means taking seriously the things that Jesus says and striving to do them. And if, you know, you're asking, okay, what's the starting point? Well, the, the good starting point is, is the summation, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. That, that in every activity, every sphere of life, Jesus is telling you to love your neighbor as yourself, put the interests of other people ahead of yours and doing that is practicing your faith. So that's that's where where you start. And and the church is meant to be a community that encourages one another to do that. So that we we help each other do that. Or if we're struggling, if if I'm not doing that, if I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, and you see that I'm not doing that and I'm struggling to do it, then then you want to come alongside me and and help me turn that around, like encourage me, give me a a way of seeing my struggle differently and, and making it a loving one. That's, that's really helpful for me because maybe you've noticed this, but talk of like habits right now is very popular, both in the church and outside of the church. A lot of books sort of like, almost like social science books being written or self-help books on, on uh, the benefits of having great habits and habit stacking and like setting up your life. So it's like almost automated, you know, and you get so much done for, but for me, the question is always like, well, okay, like maybe some of that's helpful, but what habits is the Christian called to? And, and there could be a million of them, I guess, you know, if you, if you read the Bible and you're like, all right, well, I should do this and this and this and this, but it's helpful to have this picture in the worship service, which not only captures like the essentials of, of what the Christian life is, but orients them all toward God in, in worship. Like that's what we're doing always, you know, all of these acts together amount to worship. And of course, that's what Jesus is calling us to in his sermon anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think you make an interesting cultural point because <laughs> we're we're kind of at a moment in our cultural history where we're, we're not quite sure how to live. And part of that, I think, is that we've rejected what we perceive as the over-regimented habits of the past. Mm. 
But at the same time, we have so many options that not having some kind of formula or structure is just too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a huge amount of interest in, you know, life hacking, sort of quantifying your, your life and, and, and having a, a sense of working on real goals and how to get there and, and that sort of thing, just not in the old way, yeah. you know? So it's, it's a weird convergence of, like you say, social science and technology and self-help. Mm -hmm. And I think it is very indicative of where the, the question marks are in our lives, right? And so as Christians, we're in this interesting place because we are inheritors of an ancient faith, an ancient faith which passes down to us a lot of habits, a lot of practices. And at the same time, we're 21st century people who don't like to inherit things and do them the old-fashioned way. And so there's a sense in which there's like a cottage industry in the church of reinventing that inheritance so that we can think we're kind of doing it in our own unique way, yeah. but at the same time benefiting from what's gone before us. And so I really, really just want to encourage our community at Grace to be really simple and really practical in terms of developing habits, practices that form us in, in really basic Christian ways. So rather than pursuing what you might think of as like advanced spiritual disciplines, I want to encourage really simple spiritual disciplines, but a commitment to them over time. Mm -hmm. So that what brings you deeper isn't that you kind of came up with a really sophisticated approach to prayer or service or whatever, but that you were committed to these simple things long enough for them to have a forming effect on you. And, and I think that's more achievable for more of us. And it's something that as a community, we can more easily support. So I would like our church more and more to be the kind of community where you're encouraged in, in, you know, basic habits of Christian practice and piety. And maybe you will go way deep in some of those areas. Like maybe you will become obsessed with reading theology or obsessed with, with spending hours in prayer or obsessed with whatever it is, you know, getting out of the community and, and, and helping people's lives in practical ways. But for everybody, whatever your particular passions may be, for everyone to just have a taste of the practicing of the faith. Because we live in a time when I think a lot of people think of themselves as Christian but they don't practice Christianity in a way that would be recognizable to any, any Christians of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, there are plenty of people that don't really go to church. They don't really pray. They don't really read scripture, but they think of themselves as Christian and they think Christianity is a positive thing. It's a, it's a good thing on the whole. And that's not really a category, <laughs> you know, biblically speaking, yeah. you know, it, Jesus doesn't have 
a an expectation in the Sermon on the Mount, certainly, that you're going to hear what he's saying, think it's a great idea, maybe not act on it at this point, but but at least you're in his corner on his side. For him, it's like you're a hearer of the word or you're a doer of the word. And just hearing and agreeing is is not really following. So we want to be Christ followers, not just Christ approvers, if that makes sense. And that requires a commitment to the practice of our faith. Well, and like you said on Sunday, we practice our faith in the church, which is the household of God, of which Christ is the cornerstone. You know, And, and you ended with that really hopeful message that even when, when we do fail to do what Christ says, he grafts us into his body. He brings us into his community, even when ours is not everything that it could be. So that to me is, is, is what makes the message more than just be better, you know, do what yes. I say, just follow my teachings. And right. So. Right. Well, cause like if, if you take that one illustration, Jesus makes between the wise man and the foolish man, right? The foolish man's house falls and great is the fall of it. But if you hear that and you say to yourself, well, I think that's me. Like, I think I've been a hearer and not a doer. The conclusion you would draw if you only consider that teaching is that there's no hope for you, that your house is doomed to fall. And so I think it's important to step back and, and take the temperature of the wider ministry of Jesus and recognize that at the same time that he's calling us to realize, like, we've been fools We've built on sand. We haven't done what we've been called to do. At the same time, Christ offers us himself and and makes us into a household, a dwelling place for God, so that that's a house that will not fall. So it, it becomes hopeful when you recognize that Jesus isn't saying, like, your only hope is to wise up and and build so that you can save yourself, right. but rather to recognize that he's the one building. And he's calling you into the building that he's making. Right. I think in maybe it's our reform circles, Presbyterian circles, or maybe it's just me, but my tendency is to to grasp onto that helpful message and then say, okay, it's not a bit, you know, I don't really have to do all that stuff that Jesus is talking about. But, but I think you're saying it's, it's both and like he's calling us into his body, into his community through that kind of a lifestyle in a yes. way, you know, and like that active faith, which looks a particular way, which he's painted for us in the sermon. I think the way I would put it is Jesus is calling you to build, right? He is calling you to action, but he's not calling you to build in fear. He's calling you to build in hope. And that's the difference. So if you hear the gospel message and you think to yourself, excellent, I don't need to change the way I'm living great. I do not need to, you know, turn from my sins. I do not need to take up my cross and follow him. Then you're not really hearing what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me, right? There are sacrifices to make. There are are things to do. There is love to be shown, but not out of fear. Not because the the time is running out and and we've already wasted the day and the storm is coming and we're probably going to be destroyed and and we've got to just kind of work our hearts out in the hope that it'll be enough. Instead, we're working out of gratitude. Like we're we're working in hope because we know that that it's Christ who is working in us. 
And so that changes everything, right? That that changes the call to practice our faith from a moralistic, um, I'm going to do these things in hopes that Christ will be pleased with me, into a, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, and in that, I will know Christ more. I will come to have a, a, a deeper understanding of his love by showing that kind of love myself. And so it changes the motivation for our action and it changes our desire to do what we've been called to do. But yes, make no mistake, we've been called to do <laughs> not just here. And that is so important for us to recognize that, that we have been called that way and that it's not contrary to the, the doctrines of grace to emphasize that call. You know, Jesus isn't wrong to tell us do what I say, mm-hmm. that's actually part of what it means to follow him. Well, that gets us up to chapter eight. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little something about what's next, what the next series is, how many chapters you're planning on taking. Yeah. Next. So in the next sermon series, we're going to be looking at the the next big section in Matthew's gospel, which is a narrative section in chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is focused primarily on a lot of miracles. A lot of healing is going to happen. Uh, he's going to show his power over sickness, his power over demons, his power over nature. And there's a theme that runs through all all of this that's actually introduced at the end of chapter seven. And it's that, that line where I, I quoted already that the people, the crowds, when they heard his teaching, they were astonished, but they were astonished because he taught as one who has authority. And that idea of authority will come up again and again in chapters eight and nine. We'll see the authority of Jesus being recognized by various people, other kinds of rulers will acknowledge the the greater authority of Jesus over them. You'll see sick people recognizing Jesus's authority over their illness and even demons (laughs) recognizing Jesus's authority over them as well. So we've In the first section of Matthew, in the first section of narrative, we saw the coming of the king and and sort of his arrival onto the stage through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then in 5, 6, and 7, we saw his sort of inaugural address where he's laid out his program, as it were, for living in his kingdom. And now we're going to see the way that king manifests his authority over everything around him. That'll be the, I think, the, the eye-opening aspect of, of this, because we're, we're going to be familiar again with the stories. The, the leper is going to be cleansed. We're going to see that Simon Peter has a mother-in-law <laughs> and that she has a fever and Jesus is going to heal her. And so that's going to happen. We're going to see uh, a storm and Jesus is going to calm the storm. And so... Uh, a bunch of demons, and he's going to cast them into some pigs. You know, So these are all familiar stories, but I hope that what we're going to see is what they have in common and how they all testify in their various ways to what it means that Jesus is the king. I think this is another example where the 
chapter breaks in the Bible kind of not necessarily throw us, but they they get us into a certain way of thinking because I was wondering, wait, like chapter seven isn't done yet. How can we be done with the series? You've got one or two more verses about the authority of Jesus. And I have always read those verses about a summary of his Sermon on the Mount. And of course it is, but it's also pointing, like you're saying, it's pointing us towards what's coming, all of these healings and, and miracles. So I'm excited to move through that. Is there anything that we should be doing as the church, any way that we can prepare to receive these next sermons? Absolutely. So obviously it's really helpful to go back and read the actual text. So to go back to Matthew, read chapter eight, read chapter nine. I think it's great to go back to the beginning and kind of catch yourself up Mm -hmm. because we've been spending so much time sort of zoomed in that you can forget the ground that we've covered and so I think as we're beginning in chapter eight, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go back to, to the very beginning in chapter one and just read through the seven chapters that we've already covered to kind of have that fresh in your mind. But this is one of those instances where I think the, the structure of Matthew is helpful for us because we're getting uh, toeholds, you know, like the first four chapters, we kind of climbed up to a, a, a little bit of a plateau And now we've made it through another three chapters and now we've got another two chapters. And so we're getting these bite-sized pieces that are going to help us, I think, uh, take this on. I mean, Matthew's gospel is uh, the longest gospel and it's, it's the longest, I think this is correct, book in the New Testament. And it is so connected to Old Testament prophecy and fulfillment. So we will see in Matthew 8 and 9, only one fulfillment formula, and it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 53. So another good way to prepare for this would be to go back to Isaiah 53, which is the the last of the servant songs of Isaiah, and reread that passage about the Messiah as the suffering Savior. That's a chapter that Matthew cites a number of times in his gospel, but here he's going to specifically cite it in reference to healing that Jesus performs. And it's going to make a connection in our minds between the suffering of the Messiah, which is a suffering that that atones for sin, and the healings of Jesus, which Matthew is connecting to that messianic suffering. So, just in contemplating the significance of quoting this prophecy, you start to see a connection between the uh, substitutionary atonement in Isaiah 53 and individual acts of healing. You know, so Jesus heals the body from illnesses that are a result of being in a fallen world and ultimately tend towards death. And in each of those healings is is you know pointing to his own death in order to atone for sin you know and, and reverse the effects of sin and so you can see there's a, a a wonderful kind of biblical theology bubbling up from from what often to us are just very uh familiar narrative events in the life of jesus well i'm really excited for this next section. I think thinking about 
all of Matthew, but really these first few sections in terms of Jesus' kingship is really helpful for me. So I'm going to be hearing these sermons with that in mind. This is what this is how God rules, essentially. You know, this is when God comes to town as king, this is what it looks like. And it's uh, surprising. It really is. And I think it's it's a good way of thinking about everything in Matthew's gospel, the, the kingship of Christ, not only that he is the king, but what that means and what it doesn't mean. So as we are walking through, we're seeing that, that his is a spiritual, not a physical kingdom. We're seeing that the things that he teaches us are in some sense contrary to the logic of the world that we live in. And we're about to see that the the rules of the world that we live in are somehow bendable when Jesus is around. And the non-negotiables are somehow <laughs> reversible when Jesus is around. And so we're going to see a real taste of what it means to be the one through whom all things were made, who sustains all things through the word of his power and, and and seeing that in the person of Jesus over the course of chapter 8 and 9 I think is going to be another one of these instances where something very familiar to us we suddenly see with new eyes Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.